that that's a cat. <laughs> that's a cat. Is anybody Welcome to the Collier County Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer, and I am the vice chair of the Collier County Democratic Party. We thank you very much for clicking on. I want to give you a little overview of what to expect on our podcast since this is the inaugural episode. We plan to have expert guests talking about politics, the economy, the environment. We'll fill you in on all the local Democratic Party news and state party news to keep you up to date with what the party is doing to try to get out the vote for the current 2020 election. And we'll also bring on a panel to discuss timely topics that come up from week to week. We're really excited about producing this podcast and we hope you guys enjoy the show. Today on the show we have a great interview with Gary West. Gary's a former deputy director at the Center for Disease Control. He has 35 years experience at CDC across a very wide range of issues, from smallpox to influenza to measles. He is one of the founders and a former deputy director of the Global AIDS Program, so we're really excited to have our interview with Gary. Hope you guys enjoy that. We'll also have a panel discussion to look at the effect of the shutdown on global emissions. We're going to talk uh, about the op-ed that was written by Vice President Biden in early January, where he predicted much of the failures of the Trump administration. And we're going to look at how the Republicans have begun to operate this campaign season and the lines of attack that they're taking to defend the president's actions dealing with this pandemic. But first, we're going to go through the part of the show where we give you an update on some of the things going on in the local and state party. First, we want to make sure that everyone is registered to vote for this election, so if you're not, please go to the Supervisor of Elections website, www.callyourvotes.com. But if you're already registered to vote, we want to make sure that you're signed up for vote by mail. Uh, Remember that vote by mail only lasts for two years, and you have to re-request a vote by mail ballot every single uh, election after two years. So um, even if you were signed up last time in the 2018 election, you may have may not be signed up this time, so it's always a good thing to double-check that you're signed up for vote by mail. Just go to the Supervisor of Elections website and make sure you sign up. If you if you have any questions, you can also go to our website where we have information on the Supervisor of Elections website and links to go to the correct places where you can sign up for vote by mail. So it's incredibly important. And along the same lines, uh, for those of you who are interested in volunteering, we have Uh, We're making a big push uh, on phone banking right now. Obviously, the social distancing measures are reducing our ability to go around and knock on doors and to directly contact voters in our community. So we have put on a large phone bank where we're contacting all of the Collier County Democrats and encouraging them to to sign up for vote by mail. Uh, So uh, we encourage everyone to sign up for that. That is also on our website where you can volunteer. An event that possibly you may want to participate in, the Collier County Democratic Club is having a virtual meeting on May 18th. Uh, Their guest speaker is Sandy Parker of Sandy's Soapbox, and she'll be giving a talk uh, virtually online about understanding Florida government and what you should know as a Collier resident. So it's a really informative talk talking about how the Florida government works and how The way it works affects what we do here in Collier County, so I encourage you guys to check that out. Uh, I want to make everyone aware of the candidates that we do have running. We have four different races that we have candidates running, two of which have primaries. Uh, We have Sarah McFadden running in Florida House District 106. We have Javier Estevez and Maureen Porras are both competing for the Democratic nomination in Florida House District 105, so there will be a primary in August Uh, to decide which one of those candidates moves forward in the general election. We have two candidates running in a primary for U.S. House District 19. That's David Holden and Cindy Banyer. So there will be a primary for that seat as well for the Democratic nomination. 
to see who goes forward in that race. And then lastly, we have John Jenkins, who is running for County Commission District 1. So all of those candidates' information can be found on our website. If people want to reach out to them and volunteer to donate to their campaigns, to find out more information about them and what they stand for, you can go to our website. It's a handy place to go and find out everything that you can want to find out about each of these candidates and what they're doing and how you can get involved. And lastly, we're really making a push to encourage people to fill out the U.S. Census if you haven't already done so. The census allows us to make sure that our community gets the appropriate amount of funding. Uh, it also dictates uh, the redistricting process. Obviously, in 2020, uh, there will be a redistricting. Uh, so the lines will be redrawn, and having an accurate depiction of who lives in every locale is important to determining what those lines are, and it also helps to determine the type of funding that we get for the various programs that Collier County is eligible for. So. If you haven't already done so, please go to the U.S. Census website and fill out that census form. So that's all the news we have for this episode. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to go right into our interview with Gary West. If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org. Thank you for all the support. Today on the show, we have Gary West. Gary worked at the CDC for 35 years. He was the deputy director of the Global AIDS Program for the CDC. He also helped to set up the American branches of the CDC in both Vietnam and China. He is the former senior vice president for research for Family Health International, an international nonprofit group working in 70 countries worldwide. And in his retirement, he is lecturing and teaching at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and Duke Universities, discussing his varied experience in public health and dealing with infectious diseases such as smallpox, influenza, H1N1, and the HIV and AIDS epidemics. Gary, thank you so much for coming on. My, my pleasure. So Gary, let's start with a general overview of where we are with this pandemic and your feelings about how COVID-19 compares to other pandemics and outbreaks that have happened in the past. Well, you know, even back to the 70s, when I first started to work on influenza, one of the big threats that we had or feared was that there would be a, 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 an infection, a viral infection that spreads through the respiratory route that would carry a be highly infectious, but also have a, a high mortality. And um, so that was the big threat that we worried about. And we had this idea that it would come, you know, soon. And there were various candidates over the years, uh, types of influenza, avian flu, swine flu, and others that we thought might become this, but they never materialized at that level. We certainly had a lot of trouble with influenza, but it never became that really frightening uh, respiratory disease that, that we feared. Uh, when I was in Vietnam, the, a new uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, broke out in China, and it spread to Vietnam and actually killed my colleague who was the WHO health advisor at that time. He went to see a patient who happened to have SARS, and uh, he died. And we were really worried that SARS was going to be this, this infection that was the one we feared for so many years. And so, uh, kind of surprisingly, uh, SARS just kind of disappeared on us. And I, the Gates Foundation had commissioned me in, I forget which year it was, 2005 or 2006, um, had commissioned me to do a, an assessment of HIV prevention needs in China. So I was there with an expert team. And while I was there, I actually met with the Chinese team that was, had worked on SARS, SARS that had already ended. And they... This was an infection that really scared them. And they worked on, you may remember, there was a, uh, a hospital, as I recall, and also a hotel where SARS had spread through the, 
what may have been through the, the ventilation system and infected people. So it was really a dangerous virus, uh, but it went away on its own. A few years later, another uh, coronavirus disease uh, appeared, which is called MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which uh, is, has an even higher mortality than SARS had, which SARS was around 5 to 10%. This is more like 25, 30%, but it's not as transmissible. It, it's mostly limited to the Middle East, but it's still continuing. So um, when COVID uh, surprised everyone and appeared in China and Wuhan, in uh, early January, we first, we didn't really know what to make of it. But one thing was very clear about it, it was highly infectious. And it infected literally millions of people in China over a few weeks, which is pretty impressive, even influenza, which moves fast, it doesn't move. This virus is possibly faster than influenza. We also, you know, what do you do when you see a virus like this, you have no vaccine, you have no treatment, the mortality appeared to be running about 2 to 3% based on the reported cases, which is pretty high, although we knew that there were probably many thousands, maybe millions of infections occurring in the community that weren't being reported. So the true mortality was probably lower. But we followed it, and it was very consistent. It actually ran up to about between 3.5%, um, I think, at the end, the end that we started getting, when it's, before it started to subside, it had about a, uh, was recording a crude death rate of about three and a half percent, which is awfully high for a virus that can infect thousands and maybe millions over uh, in terms of weeks. Now we thought it would, it would, we thought it would spread worldwide. Uh, it's a novel, in other words, it's a new virus. It's a virus that everyone is susceptible to, and it's highly transmissible. These types of viruses tend to go worldwide pretty quickly. They they do tend to start global pandemics. This one actually went, I think, a little faster than even we suspected because it was, it was already active in the United States. We know from studies just recently released that it was active in January. So uh, there were probably multiple imports of the virus into the U.S. and into Europe uh, during January. And so the virus was seeding the population, which didn't really become apparent until really in March when we started seeing the, the deaths start to rise. So uh, we could see this was uh, a really formidable challenge. I've given a couple talks on it here in the Chapel Hill area. Uh, and I've talked with a lot of my colleagues about it. Uh, but so kind of, this is kind of where we are with it right at the moment. So there are some people out there who say, look, we've had viruses before, like, H1N1, the swine flu, and we never had to shut everything down like we have with COVID. In your view, what is different about this virus as compared to other ones like H1N1? First of all, it's, this virus is at least as transmissible as influenza. It has a, what we call the reproductive rate. We don't know the exact reproductive rate for this virus yet, but it appears to be between one infection on average tends to infect two to three people. Influenza tends to be a, even a little bit more infectious than that. But uh, I think when all the data is out, we may find out that they're about the same in terms of infectability. Uh, influenza carries a much lower uh, mortality rate, probably you know half or one-tenth of what COVID does based on the information we have right now. And very importantly, we have a vaccine for influenza. And we have had influenza viruses circulating for hundreds of years in the world population. And so people tend to have some immunity to influenza, even if they don't take the vaccine every year, they tend to have some immunity that probably gives them a little, some protection, maybe not from getting infected, but protection from getting really sick and hospitalized. But we, we do tend to have, especially in the, the elderly population, the population with co-conditions co, uh, like diabetes and high blood pressure and so forth, we tend to get high, higher uh, rates of severe illness and death in those populations. But it tends to be, uh, it, it's going to be probably much higher. The COVID will be much higher than the influenza. And we don't have a vaccine to fight COVID that we have right now. If we got a very serious outbreak of influenza, 
we could they could produce the vaccines pretty quickly and we could start immunizing, especially the high-risk populations. But we can't do that with this virus at this point in time. So I would say, based on the information I've heard, it's somewhere between 10, 20, 30 times uh, the mortality is probably 10, 20, 30 times what influenza you might expect to be, even in unvaccinated populations right now. So it's wow. it's pretty serious. This is a, this is a dangerous virus. So there's been a lot of criticism, most notably from the president, directed at the World Health Organization in China for their handling of this outbreak at the start. And I'm curious what your view is, since you've worked in China and in Southeast Asia generally, and you've worked closely with the WHO, what your feeling is on how both the WHO and China handled the early stages of the crisis? Well, yeah, I think they both can be criticized. Um, now, WHO, um, I've heard some of the what Trump has said about them, but WHO is the organization that kind of brings the whole world together to fight health and to address health issues. And so to have a war with WHO is very uh, poor, really not a good idea. We need them to bring us all together. The only thing that I can say, even being very critical of WHO, is they were a little slow off the, they were a little slow to uh, announce the global pandemic, maybe a week or two slow. WHO is not a fast moving organization at any, at any point, and they use a consensus model so before they make these proclamations, they have committees, expert committees that look at all the data and then make the determination and recommendation to the WHO leadership to call it a global ban- pandemic. That takes a little bit of time, that consensus building. And as I've heard the uh, director of WHO talk about it, he said it took about a week. Maybe they were a little bit a week behind before they made that pronouncement, although they made it a pronouncement. It was a global emergency before they called it a global pandemic. So. Maybe they were a little bit slow, but I think that's really um, not as slow as the U.S. was. The U.S. was really slow. So uh, I don't think it's fair to criticize them. And what about China? The China CDC is very capable. And we've had them come here to North Carolina, and we've sent them out to states to partner with our state health department people in the U.S. We've had a very close relationship with them. Their director or um, deputy director of the China CDC was... uh, a fellow in the in my uh, global AIDS program at CDC, so we know a lot of them quite well. They're very capable, and they have a strong medical ethic uh, position. And I'm sure they would do the best they can. And they're quite capable. Now, China, the local officials in China clearly suppressed uh, information about the epidemic at the start. And there's this very famous report of this doctor who tried to tell everyone what was happening, and he was suppressed. His, the information didn't, come, didn't get out from him, and he died a few weeks later from coronavirus. So that was a problem. But they did, they did publish the genome of the virus, I think, within two weeks of the outbreak, the first initial outbreak, which was really important because all the labs all over the United States were able to get a hold of the genome and understand what this virus was. There is talk uh, just most recently because of the uh, information about the lab that was there. There's two labs in the, near the market in Wuhan that have become, there's a lot of discussion about them. And um, they, they did, uh, I understand that the information and specimens from the epidemic early on in China are not available. And that would have been helpful in tracking whether the virus mutated or not. But that more likely is just because they were fighting to try and fight the epidemic and and maybe the record keeping wasn't as strong in those early days as it could have been. But um, I would see it as a minor issue. There's room to criticize, but I think it's getting overblown. Okay. Let's talk about testing. We hear a lot about testing, and I want to focus on specifically the accuracy of these tests and what listeners need to keep in mind when they hear about the numbers of people who are testing positive or negative? What should they keep in mind when they look at that type of data? Yeah, uh, first of all, it's important to understand the tests. And there's at least three different types of tests. One, uh, the first two are to test for the virus. One is called uh, RT-PCR. It's called real-time polymerase chain reaction tests. And they're actually able to um, uh, take 
specimens from the from the throat or from the nasal passage, and they can uh, the machine can detect the the, uh, the genetic material of the virus in those specimens, and then can amplify it to even actually put it together and understand its genome, and and it, for, so it confirms that that person has the virus, and. Uh, it tells us a lot about the genetics of the virus, or can, depending on how they're using the test. Then there's another test. Some, some people call it an antigen test. It's really the same thing. It tests for the virus. It looks for uh, genetic material of the virus in a, in a specimen. And normally these are uh, throat swabs or nasal swabs. But now I understand they have saliva testing and so forth for this. So it tests also for the virus, but it's not as involved as the other one. It, uh, gives you the results more, more, uh, much, much sooner within minutes or hours rather than days. And then lastly, there's antibody tests. These really look at the response of the human immune system to be infected with the virus. And uh, a positive test will tell you that you've been exposed to the virus. And it doesn't necessarily tell you about immunity. We can go into that later because that's a big issue. So, so those are these the different types of tests. So every test, every biological test can be evaluated by what we call predictive values. You can have a predictive value negative and a predictive value positive, okay? So a test might have a 90% predictive value negative. That means when the virus is not there, it'll give you a negative test 90% of the time. And predictive value positive, when the virus is there, it'll give you a, a positive test, let's say 70% of the time. So if you test um, 100 people who were infected, 70 would be, in, would be picked up by that test, but 30 wouldn't. And the same, same thing can be applied to antibody tests. But so with, with the antigen test, with the direct virus test, the first two, so if I've got a patient who's got symptoms typical of COVID, and I get a positive test, I can bet, the, you know, take that to the bank that that is COVID, okay? If I get a negative test and the patient has symptoms similar to COVID, they may well have COVID. It may be that their uh, viral load is, uh, is not high enough to be detected by the test. And People respond differently with different levels of viral load. It takes sometimes days or weeks before the viral load rises. So they have it, but the test doesn't have the capability to detect it in those early stages. These are really diagnostic tests. So I think this has been missed in the discussion. So these are meant to diagnose a person who's got an active infection of, of COVID and help the doctor understand uh, what, what he or she is dealing with and what treatments they might they might recommend or administer to this patient. So these predictive values, positive and negatives, can kind of be managed by the, uh, the physicians when they take into account the history, the, the symptoms, and the reports of the test. For example, if they get someone that has symptoms and has a negative test, they can wait a week and test them again. But they're, not, they're going to start treating them because they know that there can be uh, false negatives. So it's not as big of an issue, but if you take that test out to the community and start testing a population with a very low prevalence of the virus, you're gonna get all kinds of problems in the testing reports because let's say for example that uh, you have 100 people who do not have COVID and you have five people who have COVID and the, uh, the test is got a 95% predictive value. That means five people who, uh, have COVID will probably be picked up all five, but out of the hundred that don't have it, five will also be picked up. So you have 10 positive tests, half of them are wrong. You follow me on that? Yes. So that's why screening with these kind of tests when the predictive values maybe are not the greatest, uh, and we don't even really know what the predictive values are for most of these tests at this point in time. I think the RT-PCR is probably they do know. But on a lot of the other, even antigen tests, I don't know that it's really been worked out because the FDA has released them so quickly, they haven't done all the validation testing on them. But so if you're using it for diagnosis, you can manage it pretty well. 
But if you're using it for surveillance or for trying to get an assessment of how much COVID is in the community, that, these are not real good tests for that. So let me ask you this. If these tests are generally used in a medical setting to help doctors diagnose and treat patients, how would you, in your experience, use these tests to, say, control the spread of the virus? Well, I think that if there are some uses for it, and and we'll come back to the antibody test, which is another another situation. But let's say that we know a couple things about COVID that are, you know, important. One is there appears to be a high percentage of people with COVID who have an asymptomatic uh, infection. That is that they don't have distinctive symptoms of COVID. In fact, the vast majority of people who get infected tend to have a relatively mild disease. They, they get sick, but they don't get that sick. They don't go to the hospital. They may not even go to their doctor. It's, it's maybe not pleasant, but it's not a terrible thing. Sorry, I just want to jump right in real quick. How abnormal is the asymptomatic response? It's, it's not so abnormal. It happens with a lot of viral infections. But this one, I think, is maybe more than uh, the, the other viruses that we work with. I'm trying to think if there's others that they all have some degree of uh, uh, times when a person can transmit when they don't have distinctive symptoms. That, that's not so unusual. But the, the percentage, I think, is higher here. Um, but so if you think about this, there are pre-symptomatic people who are pre-symptomatic that can spread the virus. That's been proven. So that's people who are going to get symptoms, but just haven't gotten them yet. Then there's people who don't get symptoms or don't ever notice the symptoms. And that's estimated to be about high, uh, about 25% possibly, which is a very high rate. There's a substantial minority of people with COVID that can spread it and don't know, don't have any, any symptoms that they recognize and wouldn't take precautions if, if you ask them to, even though they may be very compliant they have no reason to take precautions because they don't have any idea that they're sick. So if I was going to use these tests, I would use them in the context of the contact tracing. And I would find an index case, a person in the hospital with COVID or wherever they were reported from, go to their home, talk to the patient, go to the patient's home, test the people in the home, test um, close contacts. And then, and then because the number of people exposed can be huge, when you have a respiratory virus, wherever they go, they could potentially expose people. You could get hundreds, if not thousands of people exposed to one person, depending where they were. And so you have to think about uh, ways to, to address all those large numbers. But you can at least take care of the close contacts, and you may discover people who are asymptomatic but are carrying the virus, they can be informed, they can be uh, put under quarantine or, uh, you know, like we're doing now to stay at home and not until they resolve this uh, before, until they're not infectious. That can, that can make a difference in a relatively small epidemic. In a large epidemic, uh, the numbers of people infected and the number of contacts is huge. So you need, an army, you need an army of contact tracers to do this. And that's what people are wrestling with right at the moment. But I think that even if we didn't do anything more than follow the positive cases to their families, their close contacts, that would be a big plus to be able to do. So I think we are hoping that the contact tracing part of this will start at a large scale fairly soon. And I know that CDC is trying to gear up number of the states, most of the states have people who are skilled in this, and I know many of the states are already doing some contact tracing, but it's still pretty small in comparison to the size of the epidemic. My friends in Vietnam, who I talk to almost every day, they have a very low prevalence of, of COVID, but they're already doing the, the testing, the contact tracing, and they're putting out alerts. For example, the flower market in, in Hanoi they had some cases in the, who visited the flower market. So they put out notices to everyone who was at the flower market at a certain time that you need to be tested, especially if you're symptomatic, but, but it would be good for you to be tested. And they, and they can test quite a few people there. I think they have a greater capacity to test than we do, but we have a much larger population and many more cases. So is the number of people in the United States the reason for the testing shortages? I mean, we hear about how the U.S. isn't testing as robustly as some of the other countries. But I'm curious, is that because 
we're such a large country and producing the number of tests necessary for a country of our size is really difficult? Or did we not activate uh, our testing as quickly as some other countries did? They activated testing more quickly than we did. They activated contact tracing more quickly. I'm talking about weeks or a month maybe earlier than we did. And they, we've done a lot of work. This global AIDS program that I was in did technical assistance for decades with these countries. And I actually taught uh, to the Vietnamese or some of the Vietnamese, not the whole country, but some of the Vietnamese how to do this. And they have a quite good capability of doing this. So they, the, so China started this early on and, and kept it going at a fairly large scale. I don't know all the details how they did this, but I know that they were doing it because I saw the reports. You brought up the training that the U.S. has done to prepare other countries, specifically the Southeast Asian countries. I mean, do you feel that the Southeast Asian countries and China have benefited from having dealt with other epidemics like SARS, H1N1? Having dealt with that has provided them with an infrastructure that allowed them to respond quickly to the pandemic? Yeah, I think we, we've done a lot. They, we helped them build a lot of infrastructure. And, you know, infrastructure is people, people who are trained. We trained thousands in both those countries. And they've kept this going uh, in both countries. And China you know, has a much even larger scale training program than we ever had at, at the moment. And, uh, they, and I think the SARS experience, you know, they, they had the H1N1, H1N1, they had the SARS, they had the HIV epidemics, uh, which were very substantial. Uh, but to them, they were substantial. They actually were at a lower magnitude considerably than what we had in the United States. But they, they really mobilized to work on HIV, especially Vietnam. So, yeah, they did have a lot of infrastructure that was built up over the past 10, 20 years, and they've been using it. But they were just faster off the, off the mark than we were. I mean, I think we're still kind of behind them. That's the end of part one of our interview with Gary West. Part two will be coming out soon. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll begin our panel discussion. Stick around. We know that everyone is going through a tough time right now, and many have lost their jobs or have had their pay cut because of the pandemic. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot for this November. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Every donation to the Collier County Democratic Party supports Democratic candidates here in Collier County and helps us to educate, register, and motivate voters to get to the polls. Please go to www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org. And click on the red donate button to help. We thank you for your support. We're back. So on this week's panel discussion, we talk about global emissions, Joe Biden's prescient op-ed, and the opening campaign defenses being pushed by the Republicans. So we're going to go ahead and get started. I want to welcome Amber and Linda to the show. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. And I'm going to turn it over to Amber to start the discussion off. So an article that I found interesting last week in the New York Times by Brad Plummer was about emissions declining nearly 8% in this last couple months due to the all the shutdown and uh, it was a very interesting article it was called emissions declines will set records this year but it's not good news and it goes into a bunch of different points about how again how we've decreased the emissions by about 8% is what they're projecting anyways and how obviously that is a good thing but the problem with that is that the reason that we've decreased by that amount is that we are we're forced to this is not a beneficial way of cutting emissions so then the question is how can we take this and make something like this built into our economy in the future and one of the things that was discussed in the article is that there's a fear because 
our economy and economies around the world have been shut down, that governments are going to start loosening environmental regulations and thus almost taking back this 8% reduction and maybe even surpassing it by lessening some of their environmental protection standards just as a a reason to get the economy going again. Um, So that was one of the, the questions in the article. But I also thought that just as a, a general talking point that the, that the right has is how humans are not a proponent or are not a major proponent for climate change or a major uh, man is not the reason that we have climate change. And I believe that given the last two months and the amount of environmental improvements you've seen around the world from air pollution, especially, I mean, that's the easiest one to see, but measurable differences like they can measure in this article. How can that even be a talking point anymore? So that was kind of one of the, one of the things I wanted to discuss with you guys. Yeah. I mean, I, that's interesting because when I read the article, um, that didn't even come to mind, but it's a great point that if you're going to make the argument that somehow man has little effect or is not causing the rise in, in the temperature rise, this seems to undercut that dramatically in the sense that, you know, we've, we've seen just by reducing man-made activity, uh, travel, um, that we have significant increase or decreases in global emissions. Now, I mean, I would imagine that the right would probably make the argument that they don't believe that the emissions themselves are causing the climate to increase. Um, but there are hundreds of studies that show that that's clearly the case. So I'm, I don't think we should get too excited about whether the right is going to all of a sudden recognize that, um, that they're not adding up the uh, climate science correctly uh, when they say that it's not causing, that man-made is not causing climate change. So they're going to be like, my bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was wrong. I see it now. Yeah. Yeah. I fully feel that despite the great evidence that's going to come out of this, uh, you know, shelter in place time and, and what I've what I've been calling is Mother Nature's time out. Um, I I have I have no hope for for those diehard members of our government that still say that um, climate change is a hoax and none of this is happening and it's just you know science being skewed to give these apocalyptic warnings. Pretty much you know everything that they've been saying for the past you know decade. I, I don't, I don't, I think it's going to go along party lines, unfortunately, you know, it's going to be exactly who are the defenders of our environment and exactly who are not the defenders of our environment. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, a telling moment for here, us here in this community in Collier County was, I mean, was back in 2018 when we have a year long, um, red tide crisis where, um, you know, the beaches are closed and we have the blue green algae coming out of, um, Lake Okeechobee and, and, and those type of water flushes that were coming down. And you could clearly see and link Republican policies over the last decade, um, specifically Rick Scott's um, policies, uh, leading to that type of environmental degradation and, and what we had to deal with for a year. And then you would think that you would see a demonstrably change in voting habits from people because at that time we were seeing um, Republicans uh, here locally being very upset about uh, the red tide and the blue-green algae and how it was affecting their livelihoods, uh, in some cases just affecting their free time uh, and time spent at the beach. Um, But it didn't really translate to changes in voting habits. Um, And ultimately, at least here in this country, that is the only thing that's going to change anything is, is electing people who are going to make laws and make decisions that um, that change these. And um, currently one party believes in the science and believes in regulation in general uh, to prevent these types of things from happening. And the other party believes in a fairy tale, which is that if they do nothing, that the sea levels will remain at the same 
height and the temperature will remain at the same level. So we, we've got to get people out to vote and we've got to get people out there to vote for the right, uh, the right people if they're, if they're interested in protecting the environment and maintaining the type of uh, gains we saw in this article where it's 8% reduction. Amen. Well, that was one of the, one of the points in the article was uh, one of the quotes in there was one of the big question marks now is whether countries decide to put clean energy at the heart of their economic stimulus packages. And you think of all the country, it's not just America who is, quote unquote, bailing out their businesses and their their people at this moment. Everybody around the world is making plans to do this. But if if leaders um, last week, leaders from Germany, Britain and Japan held a video conference urging nations to invest in technology to reduce emissions and solar power and electric vehicles and put that as part of their recovery efforts, which obviously we know at the current administration, that's not going to happen, but that's an even, I think we're going to be seeing efforts from this thing beyond this current year. Um, so if you think about having people in place in 2021 who value these um, type of environmental stimulus investments, uh, that's very important. Yeah, I totally agree. This is the appropriate time for us to be focusing on jobs that are environmentally friendly. I mean, especially right now, you have bipartisan support for massive amounts of spending that you can um, put through and that spending should be towards um, to getting them retrained so that they're prepared to be able to take jobs that are different jobs that are more energy efficient, retrofitting buildings, redoing mm -hmm. roads, putting on solar panels. All of these is basically the Green New Deal that the Democratic Party has been pushing for the last uh, four Very years. Very much so, yeah. Sponsored by AOC. Trying to push that, uh, that agenda forward. But to transition to what I wanted to talk about, which is um, the presidential election that is coming up. Uh, and uh, specifically an article opinion piece written by Joe Biden in early January in USA Today, I believe it was January 27th, that, uh, that it was published, where he is calling out uh, President Trump and his administration for a failure to prepare uh, the country for the coronavirus pandemic that would inevitably happen in March. And the reason why I want to point it out is because, to be 100% honest, I didn't notice that the op-ed was written until really just about two, three weeks ago uh, when the Trump administration started pushing forward a, a narrative that nobody knew, uh, nobody was prepared for this, the Democrats weren't, weren't talking about this either. If you look at the debates, they were saying, the Trump administration was saying that, you know, the coronavirus didn't come up in any of the debates and that, you know, he shouldn't be held accountable for not seeing this uh, beforehand. Uh, and then when you look at it in the article that Joe Biden wrote, he says clearly that it's coming sooner or later. And he lays out all of the different uh, policy decisions that the Trump administration has made over the last three years that weakened this country and made it less prepared to deal with the pandemic that we're dealing with now. And um, you couple that with the decisions that we're seeing right now with the Trump administration to roll back or to wind down the coronavirus task force, especially right as we're seeing the models show even higher death rates and uh, higher infection rates than, than what was previously predicted. Um, it just, I, I think the juxtaposition of having um, one candidate who led the, the, the team who dealt with Ebola and the last financial crisis, the stimulus package that, that was rolled out, uh, to have that candidate be basically uh, predicting and was completely right that we were unprepared and that the pandemic was coming, and you compare that with the current president who is stating that he did a great job and is rolling down everything as it's still going on, I think 
that really needs to be highlighted and people need to be aware of it because this argument that the president uh, shouldn't be held accountable for something no one saw coming is just not true. And the one person who did see it coming is his opponent in the election. So I just wanted to get your guys' opinion on that because I thought it was a it, it's a stunning comparison. And I, you don't normally see such a drastic dichotomy between two candidates where one predicted it and said that this was going to happen. And then the other did all of the things that he predicted and was completely failing the, at the job. The question that I would have is how do you, I'm, I, I think Joe Biden, as this goes further closer to the election, he's going to be getting more and more airtime. But at the moment you are somebody who is very deeply immersed, not only in politics, but in, democratic politics. And this did not come to your attention until a few weeks ago. And in fact, I didn't know about it until you sent it to us. So I I totally agree with you. I think this is a huge leg for Joe Biden to stand on, not only in his, that that was published in January, but also he has so much experience with his work in the Obama administration and the work that they did on this specific subject. But that's I, I think that's a that's a major issue that we need to make sure that this stuff is getting out there, because yeah. I think right now it's not. Yeah, I mean, I, well, two things. One, as far as me not hearing about it, the, the we have to remember that, you know, right now, hindsight's twenty twenty in the sense that we look at it and we say, OK, sure. he's the presumptive nominee in early January. He was sure he hadn't right. won any contest. Um, and um he wrote an op-ed, but at this point, Bernie Sanders had won two or, I think at this point, two of the elections, maybe three of the elections. And um, I'm going to have to look at the dates on this. But the bottom line is, is, is Joe Biden that wasn't, yeah. wasn't yeah. in the lead no, and point. wasn't the presumptive nominee. So it, it not being, you know, and we didn't have the coronavirus at we the We didn't, but so yes, it, it, it was, you know, it was in, in the large world. Numbers. Yes. We, yeah. the United States, didn't. Right. And so um, both of those things, I think, make that op-ed less newsworthy at the time and much more newsworthy now. So that's the first point. Second point with regard to Joe Biden not getting as much airtime, because I agree he's not as visible um, right now as um, as some would want. there's an interesting comment that I've heard from some um, politicians and some uh, political advisors, which is it's a difficult position right now uh, for him because you don't want to be viewed as the guy second guessing the president in a crisis every moment. You don't want to be operating a shadow presidency basically every time he says something you're out there saying you should be doing something different um well well, i mean i know exactly what you're saying and i have uh from when barack obama there's a really now also prescient speech that obama gave in 2014 about um the ebola epidemic and and or it was during that time but he basically said the fear Mm -hmm. the greatest fear was some an airborne disease um, that would go across the world because global borders are almost n- non-existent these days with air travel, and you can watch that on YouTube. It's it's pretty much exactly what we are in right now, and talking about all the steps that he was putting in place at that time, so that this was an investment in the future for when something like this happens, we would be prepared for it, which. Obviously, Trump had several years to dismantle many of those those things. Um, but during that time, uh, Trump, who I know was not a nominee or or in politics, but in he called President Obama a dope, incompetent. He rallied against evidence based response that the administration put in place and was com- constantly criticizing everything that he did. Now, I don't want I agree with you. I don't think Joe Biden should set his his response to what did Trump do and let me try to mirror that. So <laughs> yes. Nor so nor should any other that, politician. You are absolutely right. They and, and I think that's one of the biggest problems that 
I feel like Democrats have in responding to the current, uh, the last however many decade, maybe uh, certainly recently, but at least recent conservative politics is that we have a certain level of decency that we try to uphold and a certain level of facts that we like to try to ascribe ourselves to. And it's really hard to combat the alternative. What do you, it is the hardest thing to, to deal with is there's a certain level of, uh, information that one needs to have to understand some of the uh, nuances or intricacies of how certain things work. And they don't lend themselves to easily digestible one line insults insults or campaign slogans there, you know, how do you explain? I mean, like the slogan, we're a little off topic here, but the slogan that the, the, the campaign line of, you can spend your money better than the government can. That's a great line. It's an absolute great line. People understand it. They think it's great. It makes them feel better. It's complete nonsense because you can't spend your money to beat off the coronavirus. You can't spend your money to defend yourself against an invading nation. You can't spend your money in a way that yeah, you sets have up nat- fire departments have, and police you know, departments. Here in Florida, you have a hurricane that comes through. You're not spending your money to provide FEMA trailers to, or whatever yeah. people need. So the line, you spend your money better than the government, is, is a great line. The reality is, is that we all understand that there are all of these different things that you as an individual cannot do with your own money. So you pay taxes to the government for them to provide it. But that's a much more difficult sell. And it takes the three and a half minutes of me sitting here talking about it to explain it. And you don't always get that three well, and a half minutes. Well, you just look at this crisis. Voter. You look at the the so, money that people are getting from this crisis, which I I'm not. There is no fault there, but I guarantee a large number of the people who, especially when you look at the the amount of companies who received these the small business loans, who were multi million dollar mm-hmm. companies. Not I'm not saying anything wrong with that. There, I guarantee they. Some of these people were the same people who complain about government handouts and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Linda, well, you're I think something? that you're right. The people that are first in line to get a governmental handout during tough times are the ones that scream at the top of their lungs that no, they do not like big government. But you are hard pressed to remind them of that fact during good times. So that is again another ideological divide that no matter what we want to do, no matter what we say, we're not going to cross. We're, it's just not going to be possible. You and I can talk about this till the cows come home. However, what you guys are talking about as far as a democratic message, I know that it is very difficult to combat crazy, but the Democrats are going to need to distill this, these points into talking points. And we have some of the best speech writers and some of the best minds in the Democratic Party. And somehow we cannot distill it into something. I'm not saying I can, I don't think I'm that smart, but someone can. And, and there are legitimate talking points that if you distill it into three sentences, you're going to get that person to think about it. I think that's a good stopping point. Let's move on to our next topic where we discuss how the Republican Party is choosing to operate during this campaign for president and how they are defending the Trump administration and their handling of the COVID crisis. Linda, what was the article that you wanted to talk about? It was a 10-minute news segment uh, by NPR News uh, moderated by Judy Woodruff. And so she had a one of Biden's uh, out. Uh, political strategist Nick Schifrin and um, another person whose name is escaping me right now. She's a Republican strategist. All of her talking points were on party line. Um, but it was the first volley lobbed. Rebecca Hendricks? Thank Hendricks? Yes, thank you. Was the first volley lobbed by this president 
current president as to how he's going to handle everything that's being thrown at him about his response, uh, what is happening now, his ideology for not funding who, uh, World Health Organization, really everything. So many talking points in there that she was trying to defend. And I'm telling you, it was scary in how well she did it. And it is a harbinger of what's going to come in the next couple months. It was scary. And what she said was, you know, when Judy asked, hey, uh, you know, it, it took him a while to to actually let the American people know, you know, what was happening in China. And he he pretty much said, well, he just didn't want to alert because he was he was he was trying to help the American people and not make them scared. So, and there are so many people, I know, Amber, you snickered. There are so many people who are going to swallow that unless we come. Oh, absolutely. Unless we come hard on it. It it wasn't, it wasn't comfortable (laughs) watching this. We have seen such a huge difference in the last decade in how, what the Republicans are comfortable with. Yes, in their, it doesn't in their spin. I haven't, I haven't and been. especially in the age well, of I Trump, think, because yes. they've had to they've had to come up with some doozies to explain. There is no what's line that they won't cross these days. I think you guys are absolutely right with the with regard to them being able to to spin anything. But I, I think the main reason why we've seen the Republican party have to uh, say more and more outlandish things is because their policy positions favor a smaller and smaller minority. And as a result, what you're seeing is them have to say things that are just factually untrue in order to win elections. Because if they come out and state their actual policy positions and what they actually are, they're not popular. Many of the things that they say that they say that they're against are extremely popular. So then they make up stuff to make the things that are popular seem bad and awful and not good so that they get people to vote for it. Um, You know, background checks, universal background checks on, on, on weapons. That's a, that's a, 85% 85% popular issue amongst the entire American public. Yet they it's a non-starter for them. DACA deferred action against child, uh, childhood arrivals. Um, these are kids that have come to the country yeah, the dreamers. Um, through no fault of their own from their parents, the, the dreamers. And um, they've known no other country. And, um, you know, the Republican party is not pushing forward to protect them. You know, environmental regulation. Most people understand that uh, they want their environment, especially their local environment, to be clean and and healthy. And yet um, the Republican Party does not pursue policies that promote that. Tax policy. Most people don't want the rich to get all the tax benefits while the working class have to pay more and more uh, of their taxes. Yet the Republicans don't pursue policies like that. Uh, So what they have to do is say a bunch of stuff that isn't true to make up for the fact that they're not going to pursue policies that are popular by the people who are voting for them. And so that's why you see them blame a lot of people. There's a lot of scapegoating. There's a lot of pointing fingers. That's why Trump is pointing at China and the WHO and every other you know, person, <laughs> the Democrats, uh, in the, Obama, yeah. Hillary were, Clinton, the 28, you know, it's a migrant horde that's yes, coming across. Yes, there's a great meme you know, about it, name your, just name insert, your foe. <laughs> yes, name your foe. Yeah, name your, name your, your foe so that you don't have to um, address the fact that your policies aren't actually helping the people who are voting for you. And it works. It really works unless, as we've already discussed, the Democratic Party stays very clear on their message. We have and to just hammer. Continue to hammer it. Home. I agree. It's extremely tough. I mean, the main focus on everybody is going to be about the national crisis, and it's really tough to cut through and then not seem like you're trying to play politics with a national crisis. Well, hey guys, it was it was a good uh, good discussion. Thank you very much, Amber and Linda. Thank for you for having me, Jeff. Joining us. All right, everybody, you know, we only have 194 days left until the election. So 
get out there and help us win this one because this country needs it. And that's our show. Thanks to everyone for clicking on. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as always, you can check us out at our website, www.callyourdems.org. Until next time, so long. <laughs>